If you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 18. To Luke chapter 18. It was the late 1800s. A new century was coming and a young missionary woman from Ireland named Amy Carmichael sat across from a Hindu woman in her home. They had been talking of religious things. At a young age, that Hindu woman had received what was called the initiation, having a golden symbol of her god Shiva branded into her shoulder, whereby she also swore a lifelong commitment to that god. But she had found it to be in vain. She never worshipped him, she confessed. Instead, she had heard from Carmichael and others of a God who dwells above all others and desired to worship him. So in the stealth of night when her family had gone to bed, she secretly made her way to an upper room in her house, stretched out her hands and cried out to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of Jesus Christ. But was that enough? That was the question the woman had posed to Amy Carmichael. Tell me, is that enough? Is it all I must do for salvation? Amy had been sharing Christ with her for some time, but didn't think this woman was ready to seriously have this conversation. She tried to put her off, but the woman was insistent. No, I must know now, she said. She implored Amy, I want to be a Christian By Christian, I mean one who worships your God, ceases to worship all other gods, for he alone is the living God, the pervader of all and provider. This I fully believe and affirm, but I cannot leave my caste that is her place in the social and religious structure of the culture. Amy asks, would you then keep your caste in all ways? How can I possibly break my caste? She replied. Amy asked again, and continue to smear Shiva's sign on your forehead? That is indeed part of my cash, she said. But then she went on, I would not serve Shiva, but the smearing of the ash on one's brow is the custom of my caste, and I cannot break my caste. The woman went on to explain that she couldn't live in her house apart from following the traditions of her caste, yet these things were just external things. They did not affect her internally. They did not affect her heart. She said, yes, my hand may smear on Shiva's ashes, while at the same moment my soul may convene with God the Eternal who was only God. And he began to explain how Christ would allow no such division between her creed and her deed. The outworking of her faith must be seen not just in her heart, but in the deeds of her body. To live with such a duality as she proposed would not only mock the love of Christ, but nullify his sacrifice. The woman listened to verse after verse of scripture explaining these things and again put the question to Amy. I cannot live here and break my caste. If I break it, I must go. I cannot live here without keeping my customs. If I break them, I must go. You know all this. I ask you then, tell me yes or no. Can I live here and keep my caste and at the same time follow your God? Tell me yes or no. Amy thought about everything that surrounded them at that very moment. The woman's family, her heritage, her customs and responsibilities, her entire way of life was hanging on that question. Amy hesitated to give the answer, but she didn't have to. The woman could see it on her face. And so she replied, I cannot follow so far. 
so far. I cannot follow Christ so far. That same conversation has been played out in many different ways across a multitude of languages and cultures everywhere the gospel has been proclaimed. It's a conversation that we as Christians are also asking ourselves, or at least should be asking ourselves. Christ calls us to follow him, but what do we feel are the things that we cannot leave behind? But what are those places in our life where we say, that's too far, I cannot follow him so far? Namely this, do I love and trust Christ enough to leave behind my idols? The things that I feel that I must need. Is there something Christ asked me to leave behind that I just can't let go of? Is there something that is keeping me from fully trusting and following him? We see a young man in our passage this morning from Luke chapter 18 that asks almost the exact same question that that Hindu one asked 1,800 years later. It's a question that people still struggle with today. Chapter 18, verse 18. Luke says, a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we've been working our way through Luke, and so we know that question doesn't just come out of the air. Luke doesn't just airdrop this this account and says, oh, this sounds like it'll be a good place in my gospel. No, he has prepared us. He is continually bombarding us with the same issue of how is one saved? What does it look like to be saved? How do I follow after Christ? Not long before this, he showed us a picture of two men where Jesus is telling this story. One depends on his works to make him right with God. The other depends on God's mercy. And God commends that latter sinner who knows he's a sinner and knows that God's mercy is his only hope. He is the one who looked outside of himself to God alone for for his salvation. And Jesus said, he is the one who went away justified. The one declared right with God. Then Jesus pressed home that point by saying, anyone who comes into his kingdom must do so like a little child, helpless, needy, and completely dependent upon God to save. That's what we saw last week. Now we see this man coming to Jesus asking the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? All of these things, justification, coming into the kingdom, eternal life, all of these things are about how one experiences God's salvation. Sinful people being accepted by a holy God. What we want to know is, how is Jesus going to respond? How is he going to answer that question? It's an important question. It's important that we know the answer because people are still asking that question today. They may not use those exact words, but that is what they're thinking. How can I be saved from the life that I have for the the consequences of the life that I have made for myself? What does God have for me? How can he help? If they've been raised or experienced a Christian context, they may even say, how can I be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer comes down to a a greater question in this passage, and that is, what do you really love? What do you really trust? What are you really looking for to give you a meaningful life, to give you some sort of salvation in this life or in the life to come? Jesus calls us to follow after him and to die to die to all those things that we once treasured, to die for all those things we once lived for, to drop our idols in the dust behind us as we look to him, the only true God. 
That's what we're going to see this morning. As we think about these things from God's Word, this, we want to first see this. We need to understand the authority of Christ over our idols. The authority of Christ over our idols. Again, Luke 18, 18, this ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, who is this man? Who is this ruler? We're told here that uh, later on that, that he's, he's rich. We're told elsewhere in the Gospels that he's young. And here we're told specifically he's a ruler. So what we need to understand by that is that regardless of whether or not he has a formal position of governance in the community, he may or may not, we don't know, he is at the very least a leader in the community. He might have been a leader at the synagogue or perhaps even a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious body over Israel in Jesus' day. Either way, he is a young man of much importance and good standing in the community. Someone was probably, that he was probably somebody who was well-liked and well-thought of. This reputation would have had, or rather this ruler would have had a reputation of godliness among his people. And so now he comes and he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He stands dissimilar to those that we've already seen in Luke's gospel who come seeking to trick Jesus, seeking to justify themselves before him. Here is a man who gives every appearance of sincerity. And yet almost immediately we know that Jesus knows something's wrong with the question. Because he doesn't just give him a straightforward answer. Instead, he immediately stops and asks him a question right back. Verse 18, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus just puts the brakes on immediately and he wants this young man to stop and think. He's saying, think about the question you just asked. Now, Jesus is not denying he's good. He is good. By implication, we'll see in the fullness of Luke's gospel, he's good because he's God. He's God the Son. But what he's challenging this young man to think of is how he defines good. How does he know what is good and what is not good? How does he think about himself and about others? Why do you call me good? How do you know what is good? Only God is good. Therefore, your understanding of goodness must come from him. Verse 19, no one is good except God. Then he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now what's he doing? Well, he says, only God alone is good. Then he quotes God's good commandments. The, the Ten Commandments, the summary that the, of the law that God gave to Israel to govern how they lived, how they worshipped as his people. He has revealed something of his goodness in that law. And so Jesus says, look, you're a ruler in Israel. You know what the law says. And so he names off some examples. Verse 21, what is the young man's response? All these I have kept from my youth, he said. I'm guessing, I'm guessing that the young man probably felt a little underwhelmed. The commandments? That, that's what you're telling me? I, I, was, I was expecting something more. I mean, I've always kept the commandments since, since I was young. In his estimate, he's always fulfilled the law. And suddenly we realize what Jesus has done. He has drawn out of this man his own estimation of himself. The young ruler thinks he is good. So let's replay the conversation in our mind. Jesus knew this man's heart. He knew what was there. And, and so, so he says, good teacher, how can I be saved? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Have you kept God's good commands? Yes, I've kept them ever since I was young. I'm a good person. That's what this young man just said. Good teacher, I've kept God's goods command, uh, goods, 
God's good commands. I am a good person. I think, I think I am worthy of inheriting eternal life. Now, we're able to come to that conclusion that we are a law keeper, not a law breaker, if we misunderstand what the law means. If, if we just think of the Ten Commandments as ten rules we don't break and we move on and we're great, then we're going to make the same mistake. In fact, the last time that I was in Niger, we saw a man who's, I mean, I, I think I've never seen it before until that trip. We were invited over to somebody's house. Jason was with me and Dave and, and, and Micah. We were over there. We were, we were kind of had our main trip and we were kind of just doing a little bit of ministry towards the end. We were invited to this guy's house and we told a Bible story for, for their kids, knowing they're going to be hearing. They were open to hear about Jesus. And in the course of conversation, our, our Christian brother Muhammad, who was acting as our translator, who's also Tomashek, uh, he, um, he said, um, you know, this guy basically said, well, that's great, but I, you know, I'm not sure, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. And so Muhammad said, well, what about this? And he just went right through the Ten Commandments. And the guy said, oh yeah, I, I do all that stuff. And we were like, what? Even Muhammad was like, oh, really? You can tell. He's like, hmm, where do I go from here? What do I say? And so he begins to try to explain and we're in this guy says, like, yeah, I, I kept all those rules. How, how do you say that? It's because you don't understand what they really mean. I mean, who gave these commands as a good, a holy, a perfect God? So let's just take the first one for the example. Do not commit adultery. That, that doesn't just mean do not have an inappropriate, intimate, physical encounter with someone who you're not married to. It means more than that. Jesus reveals that when, when we get to the New Testament and he's explaining the commands. When God says do not commit adultery, he means we are to strive for absolute moral purity when it comes to our sexuality. If we're not married, that means that we commit ourselves, do we save ourselves to only experience intimacy with the one with whom we're going to marry. If we are married, that means we never even think about someone with any inappropriate intentionality or inordinate emotional lustfulness. More than that, positively, we cling to our spouse. We remember the wife of our youth, totally giving ourselves to them, more than just fleeing sin, but flying towards righteousness. We commit to and we serve our spouse all the days of our life in ways that honor marriage, but more than that, the God who created marriage. That's what God means when he says, do not commit adultery. And immediately, everyone in this room is guilty of not fulfilling that command. And that's really what he means. We've all failed at some point in our life. And so has this young man, but he's not seen it. He's not understood it. He thinks he is good. But God says, no, no one is good, not even one. And Jesus wants this man to see that. He's leading him through this train of thoughts so that he will come to see he's not good. He's an idolater. You know the commands, Jesus says. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Verse 21. And he said to him, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. You've kept the commands? Wonderful. You just lack one thing, my kingdom. So sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me knowing you'll have treasure in heaven. Now Jesus doesn't issue that command to all his disciples, does he? He doesn't, he doesn't say those words to everyone that follows after him. So why this man? 
verse 23 tells us. His wealth was his idol. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that though he said he kept all the other commands, he actually neglected the first one, have no other gods before me. Wealth was this man's God. Money was his idol. It was keeping him from God, even from the kingdom of Christ. And that's what Jesus wanted him to see. In fact, Jesus had the authority to show him that because he's his God standing before him in the flesh. Understand that when he points this out to him, he's not mocking him. He's not putting the screws to him. He's not got delete. Oh yeah, you think you're righteous? You're really a sinner. That's not what Jesus' attitude was here. He said, well, how do you know that? I know because Mark tells us the same story. And you know what he tells us? He looked at this man and loved him. That, that's what he says in, in Mark 10. He says, I kept those commands. And Mark tells us, Jesus looking at him loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and come follow me. Jesus with compassion and love, wanted to point out this man's idol so that he could leave it behind and experience eternal life with him. Jesus is the only one who defies the no one is good, no not one. Because he's not just a man. He's God in the flesh. He is truly good among men because he's the very son of God. And he also therefore has the authority to declare whether or not you or I are good people. Because he himself alone is good, standing in our midst, he gets to decide. He has the authority to say whether or not we match his standard. He has the authority to look at our life and diagnose our idols, to say, this is a problem. This is sin. This is an idol. Leave it behind and come follow me. And he does that because he loves us. So ask yourself this morning, if Jesus were standing before you today with love and compassion in your eyes, what would he tell you to leave behind? What would he point to in your life and say, this is your idol, let, let it go. Let it go, follow me, enter my kingdom and experience life eternal. Jesus has authority over our lives to call us out on our sin, but he also has power. See, Jesus liberates us from our enslavement to anything in this life that would keep us from him. He has the power to dismantle, to destroy the idols that would keep us from the grace of God's salvation. And so we not only need to understand the authority that Christ has over our idols, but we need to rejoice in the power of Christ over our idols. This is the second thing that we want to see this morning, the power of Christ over our idols. Listen again, beginning at verse 22. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Verse 24, Jesus seeing that he had become sad said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you listen to enough sermons, talk to enough people, read enough books, you're going to understand that there is always a temptation for, for people to over-spiritualize what the Bible says, appealing to cultural and phil philological information that simply isn't true. This is one of those texts where that usually happens. Some have looked at what Jesus te teaches here and he says, you know, there's actually in the city, there's actually this really small gate called the needle gate. 
And in order to get through, you'd have to get off your camel, you'd have to, you'd have to bow down, sim- symbolically humbling yourself and, and scrunch through this thing and yank and pull and get the camel to come behind you and then you would be in there. So what Jesus is really saying is, it's very difficult for a rich person to get saved because they have to humble themselves before God. Well, that sounds pious, but it's total bunk for, for two reasons. Number one, there is no such thing as a needle gate in any historical record. Just not there. You, you, you go and you read Josephus, you read the sources, you read good, solid, uh, biblical uh, commentaries. There is no such thing as, an, as a needle gate. That is an urban myth, much like the rope around the, the priest's ankle, for which it is not in the Bible anyway. But second, Jesus' entire point here is about the impossibility of saving faith for an idolater. That, that's the point he's getting at here. I mean, he makes, he's going to make that clear in verse 27. So, so stop and just think about the... The obvious, clear mental image that Jesus is talking about here, okay? Uh, a few weeks ago, I surprised one of my kids when they came out of their room and saw me sewing a button on a shirt. They were like, you can sew? And I wasn't sure if they were, you know, thought really low of me. And so they were like, so shocked or they were really, I don't know what, how to take that. But I was like, yeah, I can sew a little bit. And you, and you know what? Uh, when I get that needle and I get that thread, you know what the first thing I do is? I lick the end of that thing and I hold it up really close and I try in one shot to thread that needle because I, I feel stupid doing this and you know it gets frayed on the end and it's just a big hassle. So one shot, lick, twist, boom, I'm in there. I'm really careful. But here's the other thing. I can sew a little bit. I've also been, as I just said, to Africa. I've seen a camel up close. They're big. Okay, they're, they're big, they smell, they spit. But they're, they're a lot bigger than what you think if you've just seen them in a book or on television. And let me tell you something. Needle, camel, impossible. Okay, it's just not going to happen. I mean, there's no conceivable way you are getting a camel through the eye of a needle. It's not happening, and that's Jesus' point. It is an impossibility where we are concerned. And you understand that, just Jesus saying that it is impossible for a person to become, a rich person to be saved, that would have blown the minds of the disciples and those around because they had their own version of the prosperity gospel. They believed that to the degree that your life was, by all appearances, good, it was free from problems and was full of evident blessings like wealth and prosperity, that you were close to God. But the better your life was now, the closer you were to God. So they're looking at someone like this rich young ruler, and they're saying, look at that guy. He's going to inherit eternal life. He, he's a young guy. He's wealthy. He's a leader. This guy is close to God. We want to be his friend. That's what they're thinking. And Jesus says, see that guy just walked away? It's because he's rich. It's impossible for a rich person to come into the kingdom. And the disciples are thinking, what? What are you talking about? That's the guy that should have been saved. He should be inheriting eternal life. And so when those, verse 26, those who heard it said, then who could be saved? If that guy who looks obviously close to God can't be saved, then who in the world can ever be saved? And listen clearly to what Jesus says, verse 27. Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Why is it so hard for wealth to keep us from God? Well, any idol will do, but Jesus points out the problem of wealth here. Does he mean that he wants us all to be poor? No. Jesus is aware, though, that being wealthy can cause us to be self-reliant. Being wealthy can cause us to be selfish and to keep us from God. Paul makes that clear in 1 Timothy 6. He says, it's not money itself that's evil, but rather the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. 
So let me just give you, you know, they always say, you know, start cleaning your own house. So, so let me just give you an example here from a few years ago. The cover of a, of a Baptist state paper. Okay, I know uh, some of you really uh, like to know everything about our denomination, and some of you are just happy to be at this church and, and know that we support missionaries through our denomination, okay? And there's lots of people in between. But, but every month, there is a, a state paper that comes out that talks about all the things going on in our denomination, okay? That's not just here in Michigan. That's on every state convention, okay? It was not our state paper, a different state, but on the front were two headlines, two articles about what was going on. On the left was this headline. First Baptist Church blank. First Baptist Church celebrates new $23 million building. That's a big church. In case you don't know in our denomination, we don't have any churches that big here in this state, okay? Different state. And you go through and read that article, apparently it was two or three pages describing all of the first-class architecture and amenities of that new building. Then, right on the opposite side, right next to, on the right-hand side of the front of that state paper, was another article. Baptist Relief Helps Sudanese Refugees. This was a much shorter article, apparently, only one column. And it was about how there were 350,000 Sudanese people dying of malnutrition and might not even make it to the end of the year because they didn't have any food. But the Baptists from that state had raised money for them to send them food. Do you know how much they sent? $5,000. So here's the juxtaposition on the front page of this Baptist state paper. $23 million for a new building, $5,000 for dying refugees. Is God against buildings and wealth? No. But why has he given us wealth? To be a blessing and a help towards others, to take the gospel to the nations. And what that shows on that state paper is the, the clear temptation, the easy temptation for wealth to become an inordinate idol in our lives that is geared all towards us and our needs and not the reason for which God gives some of us wealth and prosperity, which is to take the gospel where it's not been. It's easy to idolize wealth, and when that happens, it can keep us from the kingdom of Christ. Again, that's a common problem. That's the problem that Jesus is pointing out here, but that's not the only problem. That's not the only idol. We can make anything into an idol. And so Jesus' disciples ask, who can be saved? And what does Jesus say? With man, it's impossible. We can't save ourselves because we love our idols too much. If God left salvation up to us, we would perish in our sins because we are two things by nature. We are worshipers first, and secondly, we're sinners. You know, if you've been around the church for any long time, God has designed, we talked about it before, God has designed us, he's created us to be worshipers of himself. We are designed, our intention, our purpose is to worship God, to know him and give him glory. But then we sinned. We rebelled. And that wasn't just part of us, that was all of us. So even God's good design for us to worship him has been corrupted and twisted by sin, which means we are sinful worshipers now. We will rebel against worshiping the one true God and we will worship anything and everything else that we can find. Money, 
power, love, people, safety, family, pleasure, reputation, even false gods that we invent. Name things like Shiva and Allah. We will bow down and worship in our sinful rebellion rather than the one true God. We do not want salvation from our sins from Him, but from any other means of our own doing. Therefore, it is impossible with man to see our idols, to repent of our sins, and enter God's kingdom. But thanks be to God that what is impossible with us is possible for him. That's the reason why somebody like Matthew, a wealthy tax collector, could repent and follow the command of Christ to be his disciple. It's impossible if it was left up to Matthew, but when God provides the new birth, suddenly the impossible becomes possible. That's the miracle of regeneration. The miracle of God sending His Spirit to open our minds and hearts to literally give us new life that with new eyes we might be able to see and understand through the preaching of the gospel the the empty vanity of our idols and the glorious reality of Christ as our Savior. Jesus has the power to end our blindness to God and so renew our minds that those idols just slip out of our fingers to be remembered no more lying in the dust falling apart forever, never to be loved again. That is the power of the cross, whereby he disarmed every spiritual power, every idol, every temptation that would keep us from himself. And when we trust him, that triumph, that power comes into our life because we are united to Christ. In our union with him, the liberating power of the cross comes to us so that we can deny our affection for idols. We can say no to sin. We can look to Jesus and trust him and follow him and enter into his kingdom to experience spiritual life. He wants to see no matter how good and pleasurable our idols are, he is far better. So the last thing we want to see this morning is the worth of Christ over our idols. The worth of Christ over our idols. This man has come to Jesus looking to know how to be saved. Jesus showed him that his wealth was keeping him from salvation. He loved money more than God. And Jesus commented that even though it was impossible for people to save themselves, God could save anyone, even the rich. Now the disciples begin to think about their own salvation. Well, what about us? Surely they're going to be saved. I mean, this guy couldn't, couldn't leave his stuff behind, but we did. That's what they say, verse 28. Peter says, see, we have left our homes and followed you. Now, it's interesting when you read things like, leave everything and follow me, there's a lot of Christians that will almost immediately say, well, he said that to them, but he's not calling us to that. Why would we think that? There is a general sense in which exactly what he asks Here, he asks of every disciple. When Christ calls someone to himself, he expects that he and he alone will be the most important thing in our life. That does not mean that we immediately sell everything and give to the poor, but it does mean we hold our possessions loosely. So if natural disaster comes, a flood takes our, our stuff, we don't panic. We've got Christ. If someone else needs something more than we do, like we see in Acts, they just start selling off property to give money to the poor. We don't don't worry about it. We joyfully give our stuff away because we still have Christ. For some of you, you need to answer the question in your heart, really? Is he worth that much? That we just say it doesn't matter what we have? We have him and he's worth it? Is, Is he worth that much? Others, Christians, are called to give up much more than that. Some of us are called to see the nations as God sees them and to do more than simply send, give, and pray, but to go. Those people are called to give a lot. 
They give up all of the normal blessings of an extended family, an immediate presence and support of a local church, the comforts of what they grew up as seeing as a normal life. Sometimes that means forgetting things like health and safety for the sake of Christ's glory among the nations. We say, yeah, guess what? I'll be careful, but Ebola is not more important than the gospel. Somebody's got to go and tell them. But again, the question is, is he worth it? Is he really worth giving up comfort and safety and security? To, to talk about him under the shadow of the crescent? Is Jesus really worth it? Then there are those who fall somewhere in the middle. Those that are not moving to hostile lands, but find that when they come to Christ, the culture that immediately surrounds them and once loved them turns hostile towards them. Think about a woman named Rosaria Butterfield who was uh, a quite happy English university professor at a well-respected university and lived her life openly and without shame with a lesbian partner. In the course of writing a book to discredit Christianity, she got a letter and eventually developed a friendship with a Presbyterian minister and his wife who defied all of her stereotypes. And over the course of several, several months of friendship, of Bible reading, of sneaking into his church on Sundays, parking across the street so nobody would know she was there, she became a Christian. And in the process of coming to Christ, she had to decide, is he really worth all this? Is he worth the changes I'm going to have to make? So she says in her biography, which is excellent, by the way, you should read it, but she says in the middle of her biography one time, she's with this church, she, she's there, she's surrounded with all of these, uh, what can we say, stereotypical conservative homeschooling moms. And she's trying to decide, is Jesus worth it? And she looks at them and says, look, I have to give up my girlfriend to be here. What did you have to give up? And what she realized that she's not alone. The things they had to give up were much different. But they still had to make a sacrifice to follow Christ and that he was worth it. If we were able to go back in time and meet the Christians at, at Antioch, it would have been amazing to hear all the things that they would have had to have given up. Much like the lady who could not give up Shiva, they would have had to have given up their false Greek and Roman gods. Following Christ is costly. Is he worth it? Peter says in verse 28, See, we have left our homes and followed you. What does Jesus say? Verse 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more times in this life and in the age to come. That is a wonderful promise. That is the kind of promise that you should memorize and remember because it will act like a spiritual life preserver. And when waves of pain and sorrow and temptation begin to crash down on your heads and drive you down into a sea of despair, you will remember that promise and immediately bob back up to the surface, breathing deeply of God's fresh grace. But we need to get it right. What does this promise actually mean? Some have said, you leave stuff here, you get stuff here. The kind of stuff you get is stuff. It's a nice car. It's a big bank account. It's a cancer-free life. Is that what he's talking about? Remember what he said back in verse 22? One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. 
Give up everything now, you'll have treasure in heaven. And here he says, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. So what is Jesus promising? He's promising a couple of things in the short term, more than we could ever give up for him. If we lose our family because we convert, we get the family of Christ. Millions, now billions throughout time. Don't ever, we were so tempted to, to see church as some kind of necessary evil, as some kind of optional add-on, but do not miss what Jesus is saying here. The promise of a local church is meant to be the buoyancy in the midst of loss of family specifically. All the things that he talks about there, wife, brothers, parents, children, that's family. And Jesus is saying, you lose your family, I've got another one for you that's even better. That's what Jesus is saying here. So do not ever in your mind and your actions seek to disparage the local church because the reality is those who are believers, followers, disciples of Jesus Christ are related to one another by a blood that is thicker and more precious than any blood that runs through the veins of a human person because it was the blood of a God-man, Jesus, that was spilled for us. So I will spend eternity with people that I've never met because of faith in Christ. But there's people in my own family that I will likely not see for eternity because they're lost and therefore will be justly condemned for their sins for all eternity. You might not ever have children, but as we heard last week, God will give you a multiplicity of children to care for in His people that you can help love and raise and see brought to Christ and His kingdom. I grew up without brothers or sisters, but many, some of you in this room, have been brothers and sisters to me by the gift of God's hand. I may lose my parents, but God will bring others into my life for care, to care for me just as they did. And that's just the promises of Christ in this life. He tells the rich young ruler that you will have treasure in heaven. He tells the disciples you will have eternal life. What is he saying? Jesus is saying you can lose everything and you will still have me. You'll never lose me. You will never lose me. Trust Christ, follow him, and you will have the most prescient, precious, beautiful, joyful, all-sufficient treasure in the world, namely God himself. What can compare to that? What can be compared to that? So yeah, it's worth it. Jesus is worth far more than the idols we might have. His power, His beauty, His love, His saving work, all of it, nothing compares. Nothing compares to Him. So whatever you might be struggling with giving up today, remember the promise that Jesus gives. Look to Him. Open the Word. Read about Him. Call out to Him in prayer and say, show me your worth. Show me your glory that I can put these idols to ground, to grind them to dust and love them no more. And He will answer that request. When we think about this young ruler, Legan Duncan in his sermon tells us how this conversation should have gone. Instead of what we read here, here's what should have happened. Good teacher, I have a very important question I want to ask you. It's a question that I think about all the time. It's a question I've, I've been burdened to have answered. How may I inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Only God is good. You're right, teacher. You're right. Only God is good. Well, have you kept the commandments? You know them. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness, honor your father, mother. 
Oh no, teacher, I have not kept those commandments. I have tried and I have failed. There have been many people around me who say that I'm an upstanding man. I've tried to be a godly man, but I know I have broken every one of your commandments. If that's the way I am to be saved, if that's the way to inherit eternal life, I'm lost. Please help me. What, what can be done? What can I do? And Jesus would have said to him, come to me and I will give you rest from your labors. For I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Repent and believe the gospel. You believe in God, believe also in me. Believe and be saved. Father, may that be our response to Christ this morning as well. As we struggle, whether perhaps here someone that does not know you, who, who, who is here because they believe there is something here, but they know they've never turned aside everything to follow after your son, then give them grace to see that Jesus is worth it. That their greatest need is not anything in this life, but in the life to come, namely the forgiveness of their sins, to be right with you. Give them the grace, God. Send your spirit to open their eyes to see that. But Father, I fear also for my brothers and sisters, those who love Christ but who still very often love their idols. Father, we pray that you would keep us from those things. That you would give us a vision of Christ's worth and glory and his calling and authority here that would cause us to love him more than our false gods, more than the things that we trust in, more than anything that we think that we need. No matter how good of a gift it is from your hand, it cannot compare to your son. So God, free us from wealth, from health, and from every other idol that would keep us from Christ. This is our prayer. Amen.